listener production. Do you know anyone who gave birth during the pandemic? For many of the families shortly after the pandemic, our research showed very clearly that there were additional stresses placed upon them. Today on Feed, Play, Love, the impact of COVID-19 safety procedures on birthing families. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. The world has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic. We're accustomed to wearing masks when necessary. We all wash our hands more thoroughly than before. But what impact did the pandemic have on birthing families? Different rules applied in different states, but there were many women who had to birth alone without the support of their partners. And there were also women who were separated from their babies post-birth. Professor David Tingay is Murdoch Children's Group Leader of Neonatal Research, and he's been studying the impact of certain safety measures on these new families. The study looked at 692 babies born to mothers with COVID-19 across 10 countries. Hi, David. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well, and I hope you are as well. Thank you. Yes. Take us back to those early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. What were doctors' main concerns when it came to birthing families? In the early days of the pandemic, many of us were, as healthcare professionals, were concerned around what the impact of the pandemic would have on mothers and babies. In particular, whether mothers during pregnancy or babies after birth were at greater or increased risk than other populations. I think many parents know that little babies are a particular risk of certain viral infections. And uh, at the start of the pandemic, we were particularly worried that the the virus that causes COVID-19 may behave like some of those other viruses that we see in our everyday practice, and they can be quite severe in some babies, particularly high-risk babies. So a lot of our initial practice was around that, and, and that meant instituting the sort of practices we're all now very aware of, you know, face masks, um, wearing proper protective clothing and, and keeping babies or keeping people who are at risk away from other people, which is essentially a process of isolation. What is family-centred care and why is it important? So family-centred care is a way healthcare care professionals describe practices in hospital that encourage a, a parent and a baby to bond together. So it's essentially a medicalized term for what I think all mothers have known for probably about 200 or 300,000 years, um, <laughs> which is that it's really actually quite important for a baby to spend time with people. I think of all of our times in life, when we're newly born, we really want to be with other people. It's, it's fundamental to our existence and there's a lot of benefit for everyone in that process. So family to care is around the uh, hospital practices that acknowledge the importance of mother and baby and try to adopt processes that allow that to happen, in particular focusing on three things, trying to keep mother and baby together. So less of that 1950s sitcom sort of odds TV show thing where babies are put in rooms and you look at them for a window. And if you are keeping babies together, and we call that rooming in, um, encouraging the parent and the baby to have skin-to-skin time, so not just the mother but also the father, and also encouraging that even when you have to separate a baby. So if we have a baby in the neonatal intensive care unit, before the pandemic, it was very much our norm to try to allow even our sickest babies to have skin-to-skin time with their parents. 
And then finally, encouraging breast milk feeding, ideally via breastfeeding, but when you can't do that via other mechanisms. So those three facets make up family-centered care. And I think most parents are very keen to do that. When the pandemic started, there was a lot of processes in place around the uncertainty of risk. And that involved a lot of processes which were intentionally designed to isolate individuals. We were quite reassured in our data set that even at the start of the pandemic, all of the participating hospitals actually had guidelines in place that were trying to recognize family-centered care was important still. So there was a process, people were thinking about the risk to the parent and the baby from being separated or not having good mother-baby bonding. What we found in our study was early in the, um, particularly early in the pandemic, it was the norm though for babies to be isolated from their mother if the mother had COVID-19. And that led to very little initial contact, physical contact, and and much lower rates of breastfeeding. So whilst people wanted to try to think about family-centered care, our data shows that people weren't able to implement it. I read that the study found 54% of newborns were separated from their mother, and of that group, only 7% had physical contact before they were taken, and that's of mothers who had COVID. Um, That sounds pretty brutal to me. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a, yeah, we were quite surprised by that finding indeed, and that's that's as best we could document from our data set. There was we couldn't find documented evidence that there was either um, breast contact, skin to skin care, or even in some cases, parents being allowed to touch their baby without um, physical contact before separation. And I think that's a very important finding. I'm hoping that after that separation, they were actually able to have some physical contact, but we didn't have that data. I know that your study was across ten countries. Did Um, you get a sense of where that 54%, where it fell. Like I'm just thinking of here in Australia, how common would that practice have been to separate mothers from their babies? Yeah, I think there's two parts to your question. Um, One part is what were practices similar across the world or different? And then secondly, what was the context for Australia? I'll answer the first part first. We were actually quite surprised that the rates of practice and the rates of separation and breastfeeding appeared to be fairly universal across the whole world. And and given that we had places with very quite different approaches to the pandemic at a societal level, it tells us that what was going on at a societal level in terms of isolation and various other policies, shutdowns, all of those sort of things, or lockdowns, were were different in the hospital. In the hospital, was acting as a microcosm and, and behaving differently. So that quite, that surprised us. In the context of Australia, we have to really extrapolate or infer the data because there were actually very few babies born in Australia from mothers who had COVID-19 in the first few years of the pandemic. It wasn't until the end of 2000, middle to the end of 2021, that we got lots of babies being born, uh, or a lot more babies being born in Australia to mothers who had COVID-19 during the pregnancy. So I think that makes Australia quite unique because I'm hoping that we have learned from those other countries that had to bear the brunt of it earlier than us. In this study, you talk about the impact the separation had on breastfed babies. How did it affect the rate of breastfeeding? Yeah, we found that in the population that we studied, that breastfeeding was much lower than what we expected for any of the hospitals. We're talking about, you know, we would hope that breastfeeding rates for healthy term babies are 
are very high. And we found that for most of these babies, breastfeeding was, I think it, it was in the order over the entire period of study of only about 20 to 25% of babies were getting only breast milk contact, which is particularly low. They didn't appear to be related to problems that we might normally see are related to poor breastfeeding rates, such as the neonate being unwell, the baby being unwell, most closely related to the maternal illness. So if a mother had severe disease, breastfeeding was significantly impaired. Well, the interesting part about that I find is that we know that breastfeeding can give babies a, a boost in immunity. So it seems like a really interesting situation that on one hand, we're separating mothers and babies to try and prevent any kind of illness, but also in the same movement, we're um, stopping them from getting some really important um, nutrients from their mother. Yeah, I think you're correct. Early in the pandemic, there was so much unknown about the virus in particular, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there were concerns that it may have been transmitted in breast milk based on small case series. Um, so I think there was some right to be anxious early on, but it became clear early enough in the pandemic that we knew that the risk was low and that the benefit from breast milk should generally outweigh any risk. And that should be our default position anyway. I think, you know, it raises a couple of important broader questions for, for people to think about, which is firstly, we should all, we need to be doing more to understand about risks from between mothers and babies for some of these things, because it would have been much easier if we'd invested a lot of time earlier to know that breastfeeding was safer, and then we could have done better fixing it. The second thing is, I think, you know, we're trying to look for positives from this data set, and there were two important positives. And one of them is that over time, the rates of family-centred care improved dramatically. And in fact, we were up to rates of breastfeeding by the end of us collecting the data, which we felt was quite positive and getting close to what we expect was probably normal in, in these sites. That means that clinicians were caring about it and were trying to instigate policies and were trying to work around the issues that I think were there around how do you get someone to breastfeed if they're in a room in a gown? You know, all of those practical issues around gloves and masks and stuff. The second thing is, whilst we saw that rates of breast milk feeding were quite low in the mothers, were very low in the mothers who had severe COVID-19 disease, it wasn't zero. Right. So clinicians were able to find solutions to get even really quite unwell mothers um, to get their babies to get breast milk whilst they're unwell. So we would hope the biggest take-home message for this for clinicians is you can do it. Mm. So just try to like work out how to do it. Um, and, and get on and do it. Over the period of the, let's just say the COVID-19 pandemic, which we know there were different lockdowns, there were different periods of time where we had a greater understanding of the virus. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were told that children were very unlikely to get COVID. And of course, that put many parents, myself included, at ease. But then as it went on, it changed. And there was a period where children were contracting COVID-19 at a higher rate. It was also at a time where we weren't sure about the impact of long COVID. And so it switched. And so we went from parents being very calm about it to maybe being hypervigilant and quite afraid of the virus. Um, given that that did change during that, uh, well, it was still ongoing, right? But during the period of having shutdowns, et cetera, can we still be confident that the risk of transference from mother to baby is low? I think the answer to that is yes and no. So 
we can only talk about the variants of the virus that we've experienced. So we should just be cautious about saying that what may come in the future is going to be equally translatable to what we've seen in the past. Um, but in our data set, which included all the variants up to the start of the Delta wave in Australia, so a variable proportion of the Delta wave, which was the one that most Australians, I think, experienced the hardest, we saw that only 5% of babies um, whose mother had COVID-19 tested positive for COVID in hospital themselves. So the rates were quite low. And we that data is is similar to other data sets that exist um, around the world, showing that the rates of COVID transmission from a pregnant mother to a, a baby is in the order of about 1% to 5%. So we feel reassured that compared to some other viruses that we deal with in clinical practice, those us to look after babies, um, it's actually quite a low rate of transmission. So that's reassuring. And what about the actual experience of the virus? You mentioned earlier that there are some viruses that newborns, uh, it's very dangerous and frightening when they get it. Do we know the impact that it's had on babies? We, we don't know the long-term impact, just like we don't yet for children and adults. And I think that's an important part of the discussion is we're talking in the short term, not the long term. And anything we talk about with babies needs to think about the long term. And it needs to think not just about the long term primary medical problem you have, but the whole of the baby when they grow up. Because we want well-rounded, happy people when they're adults. That's our outcome for those of us who look after babies. From what we saw in our data set, we had 60 babies who had a positive COVID result. And Nearly all of those babies had either asymptomatic symptoms reported or very mild symptoms. And we weren't able in our data set to differentiate symptoms due to the COVID positive test result or other factors that might have been happening easily because with only 60, it gets hard to do the statistics on it. So if you were born preterm and you have breathing problems and your mother had COVID, then it's most likely that it was actually the premature birth that may have contributed to the symptom. And that's similar to what other people have been documenting, that most babies have mild or asymptomatic disease. The difficulty we have compared to, say, adults is that because the numbers are small and because generally mothers and babies are not a high priority in sort of data collecting in medical research, um, unfortunately, we just have small data, which makes it really hard to be certain, unlike in the older population. But at this stage, we don't see any great risk. So what are the current guidelines in hospitals around COVID-positive women giving birth, or at least in Australia, if we can't speak to yeah. other countries? So in Australia, we have an organisation which I've been involved with, which is the National Clinic COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, which is set up in Australia fairly early in the pandemic. And they provide um, evidence-based guidelines for the whole of the country that both hospitals can use, clinicians can use, and inform policymaking. And the perinatal pregnancy group, very early in the pandemic, I think it was around July of the first year, basically suggested that all family-centred care practices must be supported within the context of safe infection control. And I think that's what we're really getting at, that breastfeeding, keeping mothers and babies together and encouraging physical contact should be the default, but not putting people at risk. So finding solutions that allow both to happen. What do you think needs to change for future infection control guidelines? 
I'm going to sort of answer that very broadly rather than specifically. And we've been asked quite a lot about specifics of, apl- of applying family-centred care in situations of infection isolation. I think the answer is it's nearly always individualised for the hospital. So if I, I work in a large teaching hospital, which has individual rooms, so if it's much easier to do family-centred care and isolate mothers who have an infection and keep the baby in there. It also depends on the resources and the setup of the hospital. So I think the solution needs to be more of an umbrella one that, uh, and provide guidance. And I think the key thing here is for future pandemics or future times where there's stress in the in society, the impact of what mother and baby care and bonding should be part of the discussion at the start. So it should be part of our discussion around how we deal with pregnancy and, and newborn babies. And it, the discussion shouldn't come from, this is how we do it in adults. So we'll do the same thing in mothers and babies. It really needs to say, this is a unique group of people. They have unique needs. They have a unique set of circumstances. And the risks to getting it wrong may not be the problem we're dealing with. It may have long-term effects on the mother and baby psychologically and their general health. So I would like to see that the mother and the baby are seen as unique and that we put in practice consideration of them from the start. I think there's probably mothers listening to this that are fist pumping um, (laughs) who might have gone through the pandemic and had those experiences of separation from their baby. Professor David Tingay, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. That's Professor David Tingay. For a link to the published study, check out our episode notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.